Welcome back to the Global Surgery Series on ENT in a Nutshell. In part two of our conversation on ethics, we discussed needs assessments as the foundation of global surgery work and the ethics of exchange programs. Another element that I did want to touch on was the the day-to-day work of global surgical trips. When you consider language barriers, the cultural differences, uh, resource allocation, and um, the hosting facilities capacity limitations, um, there's a lot of ethical issues that arise there. What are the practical steps that you've taken or that you would advise that people take um, in their experiences abroad to address these concerns? I can start with this and Dr. Saleh can, can add. I mean, I think, and this isn't totally facetious, but one of the things that steps, and this is what, you know, we try to do um, with the Office of Global Surgery is don't be involved in clinical care. It's the, as Dr. Saleh said, going and doing some appendectomies or hernia repairs or thyroid um, surgery is, is, is the easiest thing to do in many ways. The hardest thing to do is, and it's easy to do for a couple of reasons. Well, one, we have the skill set to do it. Um, and it's a finite period of time, but uh, it doesn't really you know, fit this reflective piece that we were talking about earlier in terms of trying to be sustainable. What's harder to do is do a needs assessment, go there without really any preconceived ideas and go and do a needs assessment based on the fact that an institution has already defined a need and has reached out to you, or you have a, you have a previous relationship and have decided let's collaborate. But before we collaborate, let's do a needs assessment and see what the actual need is. You know, like I said, it's easy for me as a plastic surgeon to, to offer my services to a low income country. Um, you're saying, you know, I, do you need cleft lip and palate surgery? Ultimately, the they will say yes, because the needs are so great. The burden of surgical disease is so great that no matter what your skill set is, there is going to be a need. But that need is not necessarily the greatest need in that area. And it's and and it's hard then to do a needs assessment and then say, okay, I have a hammer, but actually what they need is, you know, an ax. So we're going to, even though I have this skill set that I could give, that's not what is needed right now. But the only way you figure that out is you do a needs assessment. So I think that is like the the first thing. And so if you're going to do any clinical work at all, that's what you need to do first. The clinical work that we, that I have been a part of, We've done a needs assessment, which involved operating, but not with my own patients. It was literally to assist another surgeon doing burns to see ways that with the, with the instruments that they had, with their setup, with their, like the anesthetic setup, 
how we could just improve simple things like how many patients that they could do in a day, for instance, um, how easy ways to try to mitigate blood loss or uh, kind of infection control, just really simple things, just knowing how their workday looked, um, help someone, you know, try to improve the system that they already had. But really the if you start doing that, as Abdullah said, you're gonna, you might even start in the clinical care pathway and then you will soon realize if you are being reflective that, okay, it's not just clinical care, it's teaching. And then there's also research to know we're doing the right thing. And then once we do that thing, we have to go back and make sure that um, continually evaluate it. And then, you know, we're giving donations. How is that affecting that that culture, that context? Is that donation being utilized? Do they have the infrastructure to use that donation, for instance? Um, and then reflect later and see, has there been any long-term change to their system based on, based on either our recommendations or how we've, we've kind of quote unquote, you know, helped. Uh, so I think, um, the big thing is to, to kind of step back. And if you are going to be part of it, always be reflecting to see like what, who, who is benefiting from this and what are our goals and are we meeting that goal uh, and be prepared to be nimble and to, to change um, tack if, if it's not, if it's not meeting your goals and, and you feel like, you know, there's, you know, pitfalls or negative con unintended consequences. Right. And Dr. Saleh, can you comment on specifically the resource allocation and capacity part of things where I, I imagine there might be situations where there is an option of spending a lot of time and resources on one individual with a bad problem versus redirecting and utilizing those resources for a greater population. How do you weigh, weigh those two situations? I feel like I, I keep getting the hard questions. No, I'm kidding. I, um, I, I feel like all these ethics questions are like, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no good answer because, because I mean, like Dr. Guilfoyle said, what is the greater good? But the greater good implies that we have some metric to define what that impact is. Or is it number of life saved? Is it quality of life? Is it one person getting a heart transplant versus a hundred that get uh, hernia repair? Like how we define those things is really important. But but it comes down, I think, to the there's, there's a few ways of, of looking at resource allocation. One is uh, it's looking at how do we how do we understand what our role is? Our role is to create sustainable impact. And so if a country or a health system or a hospital can't do a basic surgery or is not doing a type of care well enough, that they're not running into problems. So like Dr. Guilfoyle brought up burn care. Burns is a very good one because 
there's a lot of um like the sexy part of it is maybe like going and doing the surgical aspects um but there's so much that's non-surgical that is like improving um the uh, you know reducing your infection um, risks um, improving your wound care um, early resuscitation improving your hydration all those things that are so much more impactful than the surgical aspect of it and so if a hospital is having complications from doing let's say hernia surgeries or basic things like um, resuscitating a patient then introducing a heart transplant program to that because one or two people or the management of the hospital want to see that for any reason and that reason could be as altruistic as they know that there is a need to as uh, ethically um, challenging as their son has a congenital heart issue and they want to have that repaired and they're trying to set this up for their own goal goals and and means and ends and so so i think in terms of resource allegation um i think it has to be looked at in the context of what will create the greatest impact in terms of facilitating um facilitating long-term sustainable change locally and so i'll, I'll give you a, an example of like just this the comparison of a short-term surgical mission and the cost of that so if i were to take a team to do short-term uh, surgical care for one or two weeks on average these trips cost maybe a hundred thousand dollars and that's a hundred thousand dollars in terms of flights equipment that they're bringing and that doesn't include opportunity cost and how much income those people would be making or how much impact they'd be making in their own institution if they stayed and did work in their own institution. So they take two weeks off and they go to whatever country um, in whatever context to do, let's say, orthopedic care or thyroids or whatever. Versus, uh, and you do that for two weeks a year for five years. Versus um, bringing somebody to train in a, in a setting where you have enough thyroid or orthopedic or burn or whatever uh, care for a year and spend that $100,000 training that person or giving that $100,000 to the hospital without that team going to improve their local care by really identifying the, the, key, um, the key aspects that could make sustainable impact. Like if like that patient registration example that I gave earlier. Every time a patient would show up to this one hospital, they create a new medical record. So there was never any continuity, which seems insane in the context of like those of us who work in academic context. And we're like, yeah, how do I not know my past medical history? Because I have the chart in front of me. But for, for that institution, that was the norm. Everybody came with a new medical number and a new medical record and if they happen to carry the notebook that they received last time that becomes the record of they remembered what happened and so that small change of creating a unique identifier for health for those patients is in my opinion a much greater use of resources and in terms of sustainability because then every subsequent um, program can build off of that 
my worry is that right now there is um, there is a lot of uh, interest in the the very interesting complex things or the very high volume things that might not be as beneficial like doing and this is a controversial statement but let's say doing benign thyroids for goiters now of course for that particular patient they didn't want to have a goiter and it's disfiguring and it looks um, uh, like it has problems and maybe they might have I mean, most of them don't, but maybe, maybe some airway issues or potentially a very small risk of malignancy. But, but those are benign conditions for the most part. So why focus on that when the the care locally hasn't been able to manage airways properly? And so, so I think in terms of prioritization, we really have to boil it down to: Are we like Dr. Guilfoyle said? Are we looking at their needs from our lens of saying, I'm a pediatric plastic surgeon, therefore I'm going to ask them if they need plastic surgical care? Or am I a system agent and I'm looking at how do we improve the care and what are the key common, um, like the most basic common denominator that you can solve to create the greatest, widest impact first? Then once you have that, then you can start to to build um, systems on top of that and strengthen that. Like building residency programs is another good example of like a, a system or a, a mechanism that locally creates long-term impact and local capacity and and um, and like perpetuates itself because then those people can train others and and that becomes a self-sustaining uh, system. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and. And um, and it's very much usually driven by one or two people from a high income academic setting who are going back and forth or living there for like uh, um, like some people that we all know have spent time in X country developing these um, these residency systems. So so things like that are good examples of of uh, high impact uh, ways of using limited resources. And but when it comes to a particular patient. Um, yeah, if I mean, if you put a hundred patients with with heart disease in front of anyone, and you're like, you have to pick two that you're going to be able to operate on, and the rest are going to die or not have alternatives. Yeah, it's heart wrenching. It's it's unbearable. But but the reality is that we have to be able to see pragmatically that we we've been doing this for fifty years, and the problem and is massive and our interventions have still been a drop in the bucket that we have to start to think about it differently and ultimately these are not our problems alone they're problems of the environment that where that is happening and they need to identify their solutions that work for them and we need to support those solutions and and innovate on them and sometimes that is very hard and very very um time intensive if not resource intensive thank you i mean can i just jump in on this as well like just to kind of piggyback that the reality is if you decided you know i'm i want to do cardiac pediatric cardiac surgery and you went and you used the ethical framework 
you would find that, in fact, deciding to do something as kind of rarefied and, and resource intensive as that, if you wanted to do it sustainably, you would have to start at the, you'd get there, you do a needs assessment, you're like, okay, so before we can do this, we're going to need first a unique patient identifier, we're going to need appropriate uh, wound care, we're going to need um, good ventilation in our ORs, we're going to need good anesthesia, we're going to we're going to need to booster our ICU capacity. There are all these things. If you want this to be sustainable and do something as, you know, like I said, like as resource intensive as something like cardiac surgery, if you actually had that goal and you went through all the steps, you would be working at the grounds root system level with these places to get this done. And it would take you years and years and years. But if you did it, you'd bring the entire system up. And so it wouldn't just be, you know, pediatric cardiac surgery that would improve. It would be healthcare, surgical care in general would improve because of that. But if you don't do it as a systems approach, like Abdullah said, you, you, you know, you help those, those people that are right in front of you, but all all the other many people don't get helped and as soon as you leave they don't receive help thank you both and on the theme of creating capacity through education and training can you talk about the ethical issues that arise with exchange programs i can start maybe and then dr kilfoyle can i'm sure add a lot to that exchange programs are are um it depends at what level and there are good exchange programs, and there are some that have ethical pitfalls. But some of the things that they share is that inherently bringing somebody from one environment to the other um, takes a lot of time for them to familiarize themselves and acclimatize. And so it comes down to what's what what is the intention of that of that person having that exchange. If it's a very short term exchange, there's often just like almost tourism where you just come and you're like, Oh wow, that's interesting that, that they do it like that here. Like it's interesting. You guys do transplants this way, or you do burn care this way, or you do your hernias that way. But, um, so short term exchanges and especially at more junior levels probably don't create much impact other than maybe opening people's eyes and providing a little bit of education to, the fact that they would need more time to to do that at more senior levels, then um, there there is benefits. There are benefits for sure of having some exchanges and people going, but the the pitfalls from there is that if somebody goes, let's say you have a surgical resident that goes to South Africa and goes to a place where maybe there are other trainees. This resident is very eager because is in a new environment, wants to get as, let's say their intention is to go and learn surgical skills or learn how to handle trauma care. Um, then they might be taking opportunities away from the local people. And they've managed, because of the difference in their um, financial realities, they're able to come to South Africa and, and learn and take those experiences back with them and, and have a wonderful CV and a good experience and can give a great interview about how they both got good training, but they can also sell the idea that they were there for humanitarian reasons. Meanwhile, they might have impacted negatively the local um, 
the the local residents who who are in need of of that training and then when somebody um, takes those opportunities away and they leave well those are the residents in in south africa in the south african example that would stay there and take care of those patients so those that's their experiences and so trainees going to get clinical care can be rife with problems then you have the moral distress that can happen from different systems. So for example, in our North American systems, often the the residents and the learners are supervised all the time. So they're not going to have an opportunity to crack a chest by themselves and then that's it. Like just do do it all. Patient dies or patient lives and they take them to the OR by themselves and do all these crazy things that uh, sometimes is needed. Or they take a simple, straightforward case to the operating room, deal with it and, and the consultant never comes. That's often the reality in a lot of the rest of the world. That's the reality in a lot of African countries and Latin America and Asia. But our residents who often go to these places are not used to that. And so when there are very complex and challenging cases or when something negative happens, they have to live with that moral distress. And at the same time, they might not be trained to do that, nor do they have the medical legal coverage to be able to do that. And so, so that leads to the next layer of problems or potential pitfalls. And so if people don't really are not prepared or are not oriented to what they're going to expect, and more importantly, the people that are receiving them don't know what to expect, that these residents are not able to or should not be and do not get those opportunities back in their institution, then they shouldn't be unsupervised. And so we've had those experiences a lot where we send somebody and then they either they love the opportunity because they're unsupervised and finally they get to kind of be the big, um, you know, uh, person on the ward or on the, in the OR, but they would not, not have that in their home institution. So is it ethical that they do that? Finally, um, you know, in terms of people coming from low income to high income context, they might come and see a lot of the fancy uh, uh, and newer equipment, techniques, um, procedures, and those might not be relevant to their context. And so that might be a waste of opportunity. It might um, create um, an incentive for brain drain. So people might come on these exchanges and then want to stay because they see a better standard of care and living for their family, which is fine on an individual basis. But from a societal point of view for that country, they're now losing somebody that has spent a lot of money being trained and time and that country desperately often needs them. So then they leave. So um so often like we we started and, and you mentioned at the beginning in the intro is that we ha- we have a pediatric uh, uh, surgery global fellowship that we started and we brought a, pedi- a fully trained pediatric general surgeon from east africa and that person came as trained with us for a year because it was very defined needs of what they they wanted and so, but before we did that, we did a needs assessment of their hospital, needs assessment of what skills they needed to learn. And the focus that they had was that they needed to learn how to do minimally invasive surgery and learn how to manage trauma in an algorithmic fashion and have more multidisciplinary oncology care. So this person was here for a year, learned these things, and is now going back to their um, country in East Africa. And we're continuing to mentor them both telehealth and virtually, as well as connected them locally with people that are able to help them uh, succeed. And so this person is leaving at the end of this month to go back and we'll see how 
in terms of an attempt at an exchange, uh, whether that in trying to minimize the ethical pitfalls, whether we were able to avoid harms or minimize them at least, and whether we've been able to create any positive impact. And that time will tell. So that's at least my sense on, on the exchange. But Dr. Guilfoyle, please. You know, as always, Dr. Sele, excellent comments. Um, like the thing that I would basically add is, um, you know, the, the issue with brain drain, first of all, that you bring up, um, it's very, it's, it's real. And that's an ethical dilemma in and of itself. Like, do you then try to prevent brain drain by doing a fellowship, but one that's not really recognized in high income countries? Like, is that, is that ethical? Is that fair? I mean, I think that we've tried to circumvent these things by identifying as much as possible ahead of time people that are, you know, I guess considered kind of leaders um, as identified as having, you know, a, a skill that, that that home institution wants and will hopefully will culminate in a job where they will be hired or have a direct kind of return of service. But some of that brain drain is really difficult to completely change. And then the other issue is that, you know, when we looked, when we talked about early on these domains and the principles surrounding the domains, the other concept was this idea of lenses, looking at something from a global north versus global south lens. And they can look at the same problem quite differently. And, you know, ultimately, and this is something that was brought up, is this idea of bilateral exchange because of resources and the push for academic centers in the global north to be engaged in global surgery. And they will use this as a way to attract students that they have these exchange programs that you can be part of and they are partly or maybe wholly like subsidized. And there's not that same opportunity for, for students or fellows or even staff to do the same thing in the global south. And so then how is this actual true exchange of knowledge happening? It seems like this is only transferred one way. There's not as big an incentive for academic centers in the global north to put money aside to host you know, registrars from low-income countries to come here to spend time. So that's another way that we in our center have tried to limit some of these things. We actually have only had exchanges bringing registrars who have been identified as kind of leaders and people that those institutions would like to see hired on coming here for an exchange. We have sent a fellow to Kenya, and that's the way we got you know, around some of that moral kind of dilemma that students can find themselves in where they don't have a surgical skill set to maybe do the things that are being asked of them. And we've only sent like fully fledged, you know, surgeons there that can operate independently. And even then, I'm sure sometimes they felt like they were kind of in over their heads because the resources are different. So those are some of the ways we've worked around some of those challenges that can arise. But you know, it's worth thinking if you're involved in these exchanges, thinking about how multifactorial it is. 
Thank you for that. Um, well, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation uh, from the ethical framework that you're both working on to brain drain and bilateral exchange programs. And I just want to thank you both for your time and the passion you have for this topic. Do you have any last thoughts before we close out? You know, thank you for inviting us. I, I think it's um, it's great that, you know, this platform is allowing kind of more of these difficult topics to to have a wider audience and um, and um, obviously a topic that is very dear to our hearts. Um, maybe a, a last thought is seems a bit counterintuitive, but you know I think like trying to um, there's this this idea that if you want to do something, really start by trying to talk yourself out of doing it or ask yourself the really hard questions of why you, why now, why this, why not somebody else? And, um, and then ask yourself why, like, what are the motivations and maybe alternatives to this? And that, if I, at least for me, I find that if I start with that idea of like, okay, I am being asked to do something, how am I going to try to think of um, a very uh, introspective way of saying, am I the right person to do this? And are there people that might be able to do it better locally or to do it better at all or to be able to create that impact sustainably? And then I think if you're able to answer those questions and it still points to you having to do something like that and you have a clear framework to approach that or a series of principles that one can use and and like self-checks and litmus tests to be able to make those decisions, then I think it's there's less risk of harm and less risk of ethical issues that might pop up. Thank you. That's excellent advice. Dr. Guilfoyle? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's great advice too. I, I would, you know, this kind of circles back. I know I've kind of been like harping on this a lot, this idea of needs assessment. But sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And if you if you do this self-reflection that Dr. Sally is talking about, and ultimately you think that, yeah, this is on the right person, this is the right time, I'm doing this for the right reasons, then you still need, even when you've come to that conclusion, more information likely. Uh, in terms of really understanding every aspect of the problem at hand in order to be able to address it adequately. Uh, so that that's one. And then, you know, the other other thing that I was uh, would just comment on, um, and it was actually uh, as I lost my train of thought on our very first question, it has come back to me. And that is um, that, you know, we've spent a lot of time, uh, focusing on ethics and have tried to build a framework to, to guide people, to just use it as a tool, to even just create awareness around it. Um, and, and pointing to that idea of being self-reflective, and that's on a personal level, but also, you know, as a global surgery, those involved in general. Um, and that we've come up at this point with what we think based on, you know, our research is, a, a good framework to start with, but it's a living document. And, you know, 
presumably 20 years from now, you know, if this ever actually got any kind of traction and say people used it, right? Um, we'd look back on it and be like, oh, wow, they completely missed X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's okay. Like, that's actually the point is that it's just a step, a stepping off point um, to try to just help us like look at things differently and and um broaden our broaden our vision uh and so yeah that that's just kind of the last little piece is that this is a kind of a living living breathing thing and that you know you will make mistakes um but it's about trying to prevent them as much as possible and then if you do that you recognize it and then you and then you do things to to change and to to make it better. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And thank you listeners for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast series was created by Cynthia Choya and Josh Wiedemann. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the editing, writing, and production teams for making this episode possible. Look in the description of this episode for a link to additional resources such as a written summary of the episode and citations for references that were made to key global surgery articles. Visit headmirror.com slash global dash surgery dash podcast for the full list of our episodes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.